0: Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 295. Good morning from Augusta National Golf Club. Yes, the back of the range is at the Masters. If you needed that sentence to sink in, you are not alone. Since the day that I learned that I would be a credentialed member of the media at the 2023 Masters Tournament, I have been eagerly awaiting the moment that I would get to be a part of this wonderful tournament in a working capacity. So, as I read the intro to this episode, I'm sitting in the Media Center here at Augusta National, which is located, ironically, at the far end of the practice facility at Augusta National Golf Club. Yes, the back of the range is at the back of the range at the Masters. My objective this week is the same as every other week here at the back of the range. We focus on the amateurs. There are seven fantastic young players representing the amateur side of the game, and that will be my full focus this week. There are more podcast episodes coming out in the next day or so, for those of you that follow me on social media, you'll see video interviews with players and some of the photos and videos capturing the Masters from the Amateurs' perspective. There are many narratives in play this week at Augusta National. PGA Tour vs. Liv, will Rory complete the slam, will Tiger contend? But the only storyline that I'll be solely focused on this week will be the Amateurs. The best way to consume all of the content is to go to the Instagram account for The Back of the Range or head over to the website, thebackoftherange.com. One of the amateurs in the field this week is Ben Carr, runner-up to Sam Bennett in last year's U.S. Amateur. He's a member at Country Club of Columbus, and so is another gentleman playing in the Masters this year for the final time. Ben's mentor during the practice rounds this week has been Larry Mize, the 1987 Masters champion, and I'm thrilled to welcome him now to the back of the range. Larry, how are you? Uh, ben, I'm doing good. Hope you are. I'm doing fantastic. Uh, I mean, how 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 can't we be fantastic? With we're basically on the eve of the Masters. Um, this is going to be uh, this is my rookie season, so to speak, uh, at Augusta for for the Masters. You sir have been there for. Well, you've had, this is your 40th consecutive appearance in the Masters. That seems, that's completely unfathomable. When you step back and just think about that, this is going to be your 40th? How do you even, how do you even comprehend that? Uh, I really
1: don't. <laughs> it's pretty hard to believe, and no doubt, I, I really don't comprehend
0: it. You know, many listeners here at the back of the range, uh, we follow the, the current landscape of amateur and collegiate golf and you know, obviously, there's a lot we can talk about with your win in 1987, one of the most iconic shots in history. Obviously, there on the 11th hole during the the playoff with Norman and Biesteros, but I thought it might kind of be interesting to revisit a little bit about your early start in the game and your career highlights and milestones, and see how they tie into maybe today's game, today's you know juniors and amateurs that are just getting their careers started. You're an Augusta native getting started in the game through junior golf. When did you maybe first catch the eye of, uh, coach Tommy Plaxico at Georgia tech?
1: Oh, I I don't know. Probably, uh, you know, I, not until my senior year of high school was probably when I first, uh, you know, started, uh, thinking about that. And, uh, I, I played golf with, a uh, with a relative of uh, coach Plaxico's and he told coach Plaxico about me. And, uh, that kind of started the ball rolling there. And, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough to get to go to Georgia Tech.
0: A lot of these kids that play college golf now, you know, they they have these junior careers that start when they're, I mean, you know, eight, nine, ten years old and they have swing coaches and they, they really narrow in on the game instead of playing multiple sports. What, what was kind of your start in the game with regards to, you know, getting interested in it and eventually, like you said, getting to the point where, you know, college coaches are, are looking at you?
1: my my parents uh, both both my parents played golf uh, my mother some, but my dad a lot he was a he was a good golfer he became a a one handicap golfer and uh he really uh you know probably had the biggest influence on me besides the fact that i was in augusta with the masters i know that had a big impact on me too but you know i just uh, was fortunate enough to grow up playing uh golf at augusta country club who had a great junior program with a lot of great juniors i got to play with and uh I just love the game. Uh, But, you know, different from it is now, I played multiple sports. You know, I played uh, football and baseball when I was younger and basketball. And then I played, uh, after elementary school, I played basketball and golf through high school and then went just to golf, obviously. So, uh, but it was, uh, you know, it was different back then. You're right. You you didn't have all the, the coaches and all the the I guess all the uh, assets that they have now to uh, to help them with their game.
0: Yeah, today there's the the players have strength and conditioning coaches and nutritionists, and you know they get on planes to go to a lot of the times these planes are they're flying private, which which I I still haven't gotten around to doing that quite yet, but they're going and playing tournaments in Hawaii and state of the art practice facilities um, <laughs> for the for the players that listen to the podcast and the parents that listen to it. What did college golf looked like in the late seventies?
1: Oh goodness. Um, <laughs> you know, we, uh, it was, uh, a lot different than now, you know, we didn't have workout programs. We would just, you know, we were kind of on our own going to the golf course. I mean, there were, there were days I picked up the scorecards and took them back to coach, you know, after we played a qualifier. Right, so, right. um, it, it was a lot different. You didn't have the uh, schedule that these kids have today, as far as the workout and, you know, didn't have the, the, the great training rooms and stuff that they have now, which is great. I think it's wonderful what these kids have now, but it was just so much different back then. And, but you know, but I enjoyed it. I loved it back then. It was great.
0: Yeah. I had recently Billy Mayfair on the podcast and he told stories about, um, on the range at Arizona state, just hitting balls wearing shorts because they wanted to make sure they had the best tans in college golf. I'm assuming that didn't happen at Georgia tech.
1: Uh, no, we didn't, we didn't, we weren't, <laughs> no, um, our, our thing was, uh, we had uh, X'd out title list to play for, with qual- for qualifiers, we didn't have, we
0: oh my gosh, have... the X outs, I haven't heard X out in forever, oh,
1: yeah, we had X'd out title list, and then we got a sleeve, a title list, uh, when we uh, got, got to a tournament, but it was uh, a little different, but hey, it was, it was great, we had free, free, free X'd outs, so I loved it.
0: Oh my gosh! I haven't heard x out in ages. That's hysterical because when I started playing, um, you know, I that's I had used clubs and and x outs or, or balls that would would the you know the divers would go get out of the pond down here in South Florida on these neighboring courses. That's pretty much what I played. So right. yeah, x outs. Wow. Um, now you you turned pro um, in eighty. And joined the tour in '81. Uh, you actually left Georgia Tech early. Now you know today there's PGA Tour U and there's Corn Ferry and um, you know Canada. There's all these different avenues. You know the, the you know amateurs are getting exemptions now into PGA tournaments. Those avenues did not exist when you turned professional. What kind of helped you make the decision to kind of get your pro career started early? Well, you know it's just a
1: it's just a childhood dream. I. I never wanted to do anything else you know growing up watching you know jack nicholas and all the great players arnold palmer play at the masters i just fell in love with the game and that's what i wanted to do so uh you know we didn't have the avenues but we had you know the mini tours we'd go down to play the goosey mini tour in florida and yeah we just uh play whenever we could because i think that's very important i tell kids get as much experience as you can play in tournaments because there's uh, no uh Nothing like experience i mean there, there's no substitute for that, so there are a lot more avenues now, but boy, they just have to travel so much more to pl- to 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 chase those avenues than yeah. we did back.
0: yeah, I wish there were some more people around that knew but that have stories for the j c goosey tour because that um that could be its own reality show right there
1: uh there there's no doubt, and you know there were some players, really good players down there that used to wear it out on that JC Goosey tour. So you, you had to go down there and golf your ball to make some money.
0: That's the best way to figure out if you're going to make it or not. And yeah, like you said, the travel wasn't, so basically you're just kind of a, a small, it was just a small kind of regional circuit mini tour, wasn't it?
1: That That's it. I just went down to the Orlando area and played golf there, you know, drove down there and, and did that. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, I got some, I got some, uh, some experience down there, which helped me.
0: Yeah. Well, you you had your first win in '83 at the Danny Thomas, which is basically the, the FedEx St. Jude kind of the equivalent tournament. But I'm looking; I was kind of looking at the number of tournaments that you played throughout the year, and gosh, those first couple of years, I mean, I think in '83 you played 35 tournaments. Is that? I mean, that's that's a killer schedule, and, and of course, on the PGA Tour, you are traveling quite a bit. Um, and it looked like you got, I mean, as your career progressed into the 80s and 90s and you kept your card for 20 consecutive years, um, you were averaging around 25 tournaments a year. Were there ways that you were strategic about setting your schedule and aligning yourself at tournaments that maybe fit your game better? Or was it just wherever the tour takes you, that's where you're going?
1: No, no there's no doubt. I mean, that that second year, I played so many because, you know, they still had the, Monday qualifying in 82, yeah. my year. So I didn't, you know, I only played, I think, 13 events my first year. So I was still learning the ropes the second year. So I played a lot. And, but then I did start, uh, you know, winning the second year helped. And I started trying to say, okay, where are the tournaments that I really like? Where do I play well? And, uh, you know, that's what I went for. I mean, purses were a decision, but I still felt like, the golf courses I liked and played well, that was the biggest thing. And then Purses was probably next. And obviously, you know, as as my wife Bonnie and I had kids, then, you know, that, that entered into the decision as well, what was going on at home, uh, even though they did travel with me a lot. But you, you kind of, to me, you want to work your schedule around the courses that you play well at and uh, that you really enjoy playing.
0: What were the core so what set up best for you? Because I, you know, looking at your your history, obviously you have the win at Augusta, but um, you know, you have top tens in every major. actually there's a, there's a T11, but we're gonna call it a top ten. We 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 bend the rules here. It's okay. So, but I mean it looks like you were successful everywhere you went, but what, what were kind of your tendencies when you're plotting it out? And are there what were you kind of looking for that you found the, the most success? Um
1: well, you know, I, obviously I did like Bermuda growing up on Bermuda. I like yeah. Bermuda, um, but, but yet I played out uh, good out West as well. You know, I won Tucson out there, which was, which was great, but you know, I, I loved playing the, uh, the great golf courses like Riviera. I love playing Riviera and uh, it was one of my favorites and Harbor town where those were two of my favorite tournaments and two of my favorite golf courses. So it really was just dictated by uh, where the schedule fell, where the tournaments fell did dictate some because I got to where I tried to, every eight weeks, I tried to have at least a two-week break off during an eight-week schedule. I never wanted to play too many in a row because it really did wear you out you know, mentally, and it just started you know, causing your play to, to drop off a little bit. So it was kind of a two-week break every eight, eight, eight weeks and just budgeting it around the courses I liked and uh, just went, went with it that way.
0: Yeah, because I'm looking at, at I mean, keep, like I said, keeping your card for 20 consecutive years, you know, super consistent, super just, you know, really navigating it correctly. So, yeah, that sounds like you really put, it's not just what you did on the golf course, but making sure that your abilities were optimized once you did get to the golf course, which, you know, revolved around taking breaks and plotting your way around the tour in the country to make sure that you were, when you arrived someplace, you were set up to succeed.
1: Yeah, and, you know, I wanted to, uh, you know, be, still be – I didn't want to get burned out. I wanted to play for a long time. So some of the veteran players that I looked up to would always said, you know, pace yourself. Don't kill yourself playing all those tournaments. And, you know, after winning a tournament, Danny Thomas-Miffessick, then after winning Augusta, helped me to cut back on my schedule so I could uh, take it easy, be with, be home with the family more, and uh, and stay fresher during the year
0: who were some of your mentors when you first got on tour? I mean, I'm thinking 80, 81. I mean, is it, uh, yeah, I am. several names are popping to mind, but who were some of the guys that maybe kind of helped take you under their wing and can, kind of show you the professional aspect of being a professional golfer?
1: Well, you know, two, two guys that were good friends of mine, uh, Larry Nelson and Don Pooley were very guys I looked up to, to, to ask them advice. Um, other guys that, uh, helped me where Gary player was always very nice, encouraging me. Butch Baird was a uh, very nice as well. So those would be some of the guys that come to mind right now, uh, guiding me on, uh, for example, don't be away from the family more than two weeks. Make sure you get back to the family and uh, just pacing yourself. So you don't burn yourself out. And, uh, and that's the nice thing about it out there. You know, we were, we were out there helping each other out and, uh, I'm very thankful for the help those guys gave me.
0: Yeah. Well, you're, most people might think that your your master's experience started in 1987, but it goes way back earlier than that. As an Augusta native, you're you're operating the scoreboard as a teenager. How when I think about that in the current landscape, that probably is not happening anymore. But how, how what was the kind of the the culture around the Masters for a teenager just come in and operate the scoreboards as a local, just a local kid that's interested in golf? How did you get that gig? Well, that's a
1: good question. I don't know if my dad had some pull or or not, but you had to be 13 years old, so I had to wait till I was 13, and then I got the opportunity to work out there, and I worked on the scoreboard on number three, and they had an older person kind of heading it up, and they would have us kids kind of following the orders and doing what we were we're told to do, and it was just, I was loving it. I mean, I got a (laughs) friend. get into the tournament i got a little ticket to have free lunch i mean it didn't get any better than that as a 13 14 year old
0: no i can't imagine i mean those those perks right there just the ticket and front row seat and and you must have been there i'm just thinking as a teenager you're rooting for i'm guessing you're rooting for birdies because you're popping up red numbers when you can and you know that a cheer is going to go up when that happens so you're right there in the thick of it watching it
1: yeah it's it's so much fun i mean could you do you you put the number up there and you you know the response is going to come up like oh we made a bogey or a cheer for a birdie right. and uh, just to be a little part of the action like that was uh, was a lot of fun
0: now and i know you i know you've made birdies and bogeys on the golf course but as a young scorekeeper operating the scoreboards did you ever make any mistakes up there put the wrong number up uh not that i can remember <laughs> okay <laughs> If I did, i block that out. Okay. Well, hey, you know, that's the best way to do it. Block out the bogeys. That makes perfect sense. That's right. Um, Well, I got to ask. So, you know, name of the podcast is the back of the range. So it's all about practice and preparation. How did you prepare for the Masters each year? Obviously, I'm I'm guessing it starts well before when you get on property. But when did you start mentally start getting yourself ready for, for the Masters each year? You
1: know, you... I couldn't help start thinking about it once it became a new year, once January came along, you know, it comes up quick. And even though I had a lot of other tournaments, it was always in the back of my mind and, you know, trying to make, get ready, looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest things, you know, you work on it. I do for Augusta. I mean, you've got to hit the ball. Well, you got to have good iron play because I think it's, it's very much a second shot golf course. And then you've got to have a good short game. I mean, you've got to put those greens well and you've got to get it up and down. So, you know, whenever I would uh, get there, I spent a lot of time on that putting green trying to uh, make sure I had the speed of the greens down to uh, really make some make some good putts.
0: You know, your your win in '87 is predicated uh, by what happened in '86. And when people think of the '86 Masters, you know, they think of the final round 65 that Jack Nicklaus shot. But there was one other 65 shot that day. And while everyone's focusing on on you know the Golden Bear making this historic charge. You shoot 65, which gets you T16, which gets you back in 87. Now, I mean, obviously your game is good enough and, you know, you can easily assume and think that you could win before the 87 tournament rolled around. But, you know, most people think of your chip, but it's also kind of realistic to think that 87 may not have happened without that final round in 86. You know, it is possible. I mean, I did
1: finish high enough on the money list to get me back in. I finished, I think, 17th on the money list that and got me back in. But it was always nice to know you played well enough in the Masters, which it was top 24 back then, to get you back into it. Okay. I feel like that 65 was a springboard into the next year because I came back with really good feelings because the last time I competed on that, on that golf course – I just got seven under par, so I think that did give me some momentum and a good feeling coming in. Despite the fact that I was playing good when I came in in eighty-seven, but it was uh, it's nice to go back to a golf course where you played well the previous year.
0: It's um, I know that I mean I can't even fathom how many airports you have walked through through the course of your life since nineteen eighty-seven with people stopping you and talking about the shot, the chip on on eleven, and. Um, I, I think I've read somewhere where you're fine telling that story because it's one of the highlights of your of your career of your life. Um, do any funny stories stick out from people that coming up to you and saying I was there, I saw it? And uh, how many people have come up to you saying they were there? That has to be just more people than probably the masters could contain. Everyone says they're there.
1: Well, well, quite a few. And of course, you know, people have told me that. Uh, I wonder if they really were there. But hey, if they said they were there, I believe them. I'm. <laughs> there but uh you know it is it's it's very it's very nice of the people to come up and say something to me and uh you know they do sometimes say sorry but like you said it's it's a good subject i enjoy talking about it you know obviously it's a a great memory so uh it's a lot of fun to talk about i mean one of the most fun things i have about it now is in pro-ams when i get asked about it i kind of have the question okay who is the third in the playoffs? And it's become a great question because I'd say 90% or more don't know who the third person in the playoff was. Sure. So I have a lot, have a lot of fun with that and, uh, you know, having them guess and everything and tell them. So, uh, it's, uh, it's always fun. And when people do that, it's just very nice of them to, uh, to remember that. And it's, uh,
0: it's okay with me yeah I bet yeah funny enough I actually bumped into Steve Melnick at a collegiate event about a month ago at Sea Island who of course was uh well you were busy chipping the ball in the hole at the time but he was he was on the the broadcast with he, he made the call um but yeah just saw him about a month ago and the other thing that's so cool is you were the last person in history to have the green jacket slipped over their shoulders by Jack Nicklaus
1: yeah, that was very special. I mean, you know, Jack was my favorite growing up and to, to have him put the jacket on me and congratulate me was uh you know, just uh, completed an unbelievable week for me. Really did.
0: More nerve well, we probably can't answer this, but more nerve wracking, probably equally as nerve wracking, um, hosting the champions that the next year or navigating through the playoff.
1: Um well, you know, it was pretty close. I was <laughs> first time for me and that's why I, I like to tell the younger guys when they win that you know you belong here and uh, and just enjoy it because it's a little uh a little overwhelming the first time i was there and uh i, I don't <laughs> that's a good question i'm sure the playoff was more nerve-wracking but it was a it was a fun nervous at the at champions dinner too and uh it's 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 a night i look forward to every year it's great
0: you got and sneed palmer nicholas um gosh who else uh I'm trying to think who else is, well, Hogan, Hogan, was Hogan there at the time? Hogan's- no,
1: he started the dinner, but he never did come after, since I'd won. Um, but, but I was so fortunate to come along when I did. Cause I mean, those you mentioned, you know, Byron Nelson, stairs and Snead, Nicholas Palmer, obviously, but Herman Kaiser, Henry Pickard, all these great old players that I got to meet and talk with uh, Jackie Burke. Um, it was just so great. And then you move all the way up through, Tiger Woods and all the great young players now. So to be in that group and to have seen and enjoyed the company of so many great players has been a big thrill for me.
0: Who I, I know this is almost impossible for you to pick the one guy that, you know, if you were, you make it a point, you got to visit with him and and, and hear a couple of stories or just check in. Is there any one guy that maybe or a handful that you always kind of made sure you checked in with just because of, who they were and maybe the stories they would tell. I mean, I've, I've heard stories that Snead always had a joke to tell that probably could never be repeated, but it, were there those that, that their core group that you kind of always checked in with it? Cause it was the one time of year you could.
1: Well, there's so many of them, Yeah, I know. but two guys come to mention, and it's Jackie Burke who was just I uh, loved. He'd listen to Jackie Burke talk, talk stories in golf. Cause he was so, uh, did so colorful with his stories, so great, and he just the knowledge he had. And Bob Goldby as well. Uh, I really enjoyed Bob Goldby. He would tell stories at the dinner, and, uh, and that's just to mention too, there are so many others, but those two come to mind as I really enjoy talking and listening to them.
0: Um, I'm guessing that, that dinner in 88, you just had kind of had a deer in the headlights look about you. Like, I can't believe I'm hosting this dinner and all these guys are staring at me and, and where they're telling stories and they're congratulating me. Have you seen that same deer in the headlights look from younger guys come through over the last, you know, 10, 20 years? Do you see a look (laughs) in their eyes that said, oh yeah, I know what that look is. Yeah, I, you know, I really don't. I think the
1: guys come in and uh, you know, they're maybe they're maybe better prepared for it than I was, and uh, they really come in looking good. And uh, the nice thing is, when I look back at the pictures in '87, I, I look okay. I don't. Look, <laughs> I don't. Um, so I think maybe I hit it pretty well, but they handle it probably a little better than I did.
0: Well, you are still the only Augusta native to win the Masters. I know you live in Columbus, Georgia, which is, I guess, about a four-hour drive to Augusta, and You know, another special thing about Masters champions, you uh, receive an honorary membership and allows you to play against the national. I'm guessing you don't have a problem getting a tee time there when you need one. You obviously have your own memories from competing. But the other cool thing I was thinking about is every time you bring a guest or a friend or any, I mean, anyone, you are, I mean, for you, it's just bringing a guest out to the club, but you're essentially fulfilling someone's lifelong dream. Every time you bring a new person out there, do any trips just stand out, you know, obviously away from the master's term, but do any just casual trips stand out? That has to be such a thrill.
1: Well, it really, really is. I mean, I really enjoy it when I bring someone and, uh, of course, I mean, taking my, my three boys to play there, that's, that's been a big thrill for me and, uh, I'll still continue to take them to play there. Um, But taking people that haven't been there, you know, some, some, uh, a good friend of mine here in Columbus, I've taken him and uh, we still, we were talking, we played golf the other day. and We were talking about uh, our time there. So it is a, it's a lot of fun. I mean, they're having a good time, but I'm having a lot of fun. Seeing enjoyment they're getting and I'm, I'm enjoying it a great deal myself.
0: That has to be just so emotional for them. And it just be, yeah, like you said, it must be just such a thrill for you to watch that because, they, I mean, who knows what their golf games are like at that time, because that would be the furthest thing from my mind, but just seeing that they're, they just have to be looking around saying, I can't believe I'm here.
1: Well, yeah. And the tough thing is that also makes it hard to play good golf because you're kind of overwhelmed just being there. So, you know, the golf never seems to be as good as it could be because you're just so, uh, you know, excited to be there.
0: Now I know that you don't you've never tried to hit the chip again from 11 i know that i that's a i've read that i know that not surprising whatsoever why would you you know why would you want to paint over a rembrandt why would you want to do that but your friends that you bring i'm sure they run over and try it themselves
1: you know i'm sure they have done come to mind people ask where it was and i'll say it's over there somewhere because i'm not going there you know now they've changed it where it's a it's a bigger slope so it's completely different now um, but I, uh, you know, I don't remember many trying it, but I hear from members that a lot of the people that would come with them would go over there and try it and hit the shot and everything. So um, it's, you know, I'm glad people are having fun with it.
0: Yeah. There's a young man from Georgia Southern by the name of Ben Carr, who is going to be playing in the Masters this year. I was there at the USAM last summer at Ridgewood in New Jersey where, I mean, this crowd fell in love with this kid. Um, Not that they weren't rooting for Sam Bennett to play well, but man, when they announced his name, there was a deafening roar for that kid. Um, clearly something that you can relate to. Doesn't hurt to have people in your corner when you're out on the golf course. But again, you know, the weight of it, uh, you got to manage that too. How did you kind of manage to control your emotions at the Masters being an Augusta native, knowing you had all that support? First,
1: let me just second, Ben Carr, you know, we, we play at the country club of Columbus together and he is just a great uh, young man. And I'm looking forward to, playing the practice round with him in the par three with him and Russell Henley. So we're going to have a lot of fun. Um, and I'm excited for him to be there, but you know, the great thing for me at Augusta is everybody was happy. I was there and was supporting me. Didn't feel like I had big expectations on me because it was such a big tournament. It was such a major, people weren't expecting me to win it or anything. They were just happy. I was there and were just giving me support. So it really was a nice atmosphere for me to be in and, it's just it's been great
0: yeah I know um I know this is going to be your final appearance in the masters as a competitor 40 years is an absolutely astonishing run Uh, I'd I'd ask you what you're going to miss but you know you you have the champions dinner you have the par three I'm sure you're going to continue to knock it around the par three for, for 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 several years is there I mean, looking at it, realizing that the course has grown by what six, seven hundred yards. It's it's and and you're in your mid sixties. I mean, it's it's realistic to understand that it's just it's it. Um, the course is 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 long, but is there really any, is there anything you're going to miss about competing out there, or are you pretty much at peace with uh, you know this time to turn the page?
1: Well, I, I am at peace with it, but what I will miss is just playing uh, with the guys. Uh, number one, I get to play with some guys that I played with on the PGA tour. They're still out there. Yeah. I played with very young and also playing with some of the new guys, playing with some new guys I did not know and getting to know them and be around them and play with them for a couple of days or whatever. Um, I, I will miss that cause it's been a lot of fun, uh, in both of those regards. Yes.
0: Well, sir, I will let you get out of here uh, with one final question. You are a veteran of of Augusta National. I'm going to be a rookie this year, my first year being a credentialed member of the press at Augusta National. Give me some advice. What do I need to maybe go see or do or people I should talk to? Do you have any advice for a rookie uh, media guy at the Masters?
1: You know, that's a really good question. Excuse me. Just soak it up. Just enjoy it. Definitely go over to the – a uh, par three golf course. I think that's one of the prettiest spots on the golf course. You know they've redone it and they've did a gr- done a great job with it. So definitely do that, and just you know make sure you walk around the golf course. Go down to Eben Corner, check it all out, and uh, enjoy the enjoy the best concessions in golf.
0: Okay, perfect. I'm glad you mentioned that concessions. What is what is Larry Mize's go to? What is your guilty pre- pleasure there? food wise snack wise i can't believe i didn't even think about this until now i'm glad you brought that up what is the i mean this is your one week of the year at the masters what are you guilty of like i, I eat way too much of that
1: well you know we're spoiled in the locker room with it's a lot of great food that they have up there sure. and uh, they have the uh krispy kreme donuts in the locker room for us which i do indulge in that a little bit which i love though um but as far as the concessions out on the course and stuff sometimes i would have someone go and get me uh ham and cheese on rye and i enjoyed eating the ham and cheese on rye they have out there but every bit of it's good it's all good and it's all priced very reasonable and it's it's a blast you'll have a great time i can't wait for you to get there
0: really appreciate the time and uh, I, I thank you so much and uh, all the best uh, on your uh, on your master's experience this week i uh, appreciate it ben take care and there you have it. Special thanks to Larry Mize for joining me on this special episode here at the Back of the Range. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Every episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. And again, stay tuned to the Instagram account, The Back of the Range, for coverage of the amateurs here at the Masters. We'll see you again next time here at the Back of the Range.